We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And Oladipo wants it again. Approaching two minutes to play. With everybody what's going on welcome back to another episode here of setting the pace on pacerstalk.net and joining me as he does every monday the one and only kent sterling kent welcome back brother i'm doing great i hope you're doing great we're all doing great we're hunkering down we're doing our responsible best to stay out of each other's way and and not spread this thing but that doesn't mean we can't have some fun Absolutely. I mean, there was reports coming out last week that the NBA might be canceled, and now we're still kind of in limbo on what the next process is. But hey, while we're in this process, let's enjoy it together and talk yeah. some Pacers basketball. But before we get into that, Kent, I want to give some major praise to uh, Indiana Fever legend Tamika Catchings for yeah. making the Hall of Fame. She is well-deserving of that award and possibly the greatest basketball women's basketball player of all time. You know, she's just and as good a person, right. you know, as, as as anybody who's lucky enough to cover sports for a living knows in Indianapolis, when you deal with Tamika, you're dealing with a really, really good person, not just a terrific competitor, but somebody who is generous with her time and her energy and her spirit. And in seeing somebody like that rewarded in this way is is really life affirming to me. I, I have a lot of respect for the people who who make those votes 
and and put people in the Hall of Fame. They got this one right. I'm not sure about Eddie Sutton going into the Hall of Fame, but Tamika going into the Hall of Fame, that is outstanding. It is outstanding, and she is definitely someone that, you know, you just saw how she carried herself throughout her tenure with the with the fever, her commitment to the state of Indiana after that as well. So, I mean, just a huge part of me. And is she still in the Pacers front office, or is it just the fever front office? She's the general manager of the fever. When they moved Kelly across over to the Pacers, uh, Tamika kind of took Kelly's spot as general manager, and then they hired a president over the top. Gotcha, gotcha. I didn't know if she was doing anything behind the scenes, like for the Pacers at all, but you know what? Uh, she's definitely an Indiana person now, and it's great to see yeah. that. So, other than that, Kent, you know, I uh, I know you've been eating a lot of pizza. You said on Twitter, yeah. So uh, it just never stops. I I did twice yesterday. I bought a uh, a large at Noble Romans, and Noble Romans pizza like used to be the joint. It was the best in Indiana, uh-huh. and then it went through kind of a period where it wasn't very good anymore. And, and the restaurants closed, most of them. And now they got kind of these, uh, they're doing more things like with craft beer and, and Noble Romans pizza, kind of a pizza bistro type feel. And uh, got some Noble Romans yesterday. It was delicious as always. Nice. Well, what else did you get? Is it just Noble Romans? That's all I got yesterday. I, I mean, of course, we get the Ale Emporium pizza. We get pizza from uh, Murphy's. We'll get a pizza once in a while from Pacini's. Uh, Giacomo's oh, yeah. is, is a big hit in the Sterling household. And then there's Giacomo's. some frozen pizzas that we'll indulge in uh, from time to time. Home Run Inn is kind of a staple in Chicago, and they've got those down here. And so uh, we'll grab those as well. Wow. You're all over the place. You know, your pizza inspired me. I had a little mini pizza before I came on here for my lunch. Had a Red Baron mini pizza. Nice. Uh, not bad. Not bad. I mean, it's uh, it is what it is. But had that with some chips and salsa as well. So you know, just starting my day off trying to get things going here. But anyway, guys, we are going to unveil our top five most underappreciated Pacers. And last in the last couple of weeks, we've been doing our top thirty of all time. But these are guys we thought are underappreciated, and some of these guys might have made the list. Uh, the previous couple yeah. weeks, so you know it's understandable. But Kent, I gotta gotta start things off asking you, number five, who you got? I got Clark Kellogg. Okay, you know a lot of he only played for the Pacers and played for a short period of time, I think five years, but he averaged eighteen nine a game and nine and a half rebounds. Was a terrific player, and if his knees had held up, he would have been an All Star multiple times. He had a terrific rookie year where he averaged twenty and ten. And uh, if not for bad health, uh, I think that we would talk about Clark Kellogg as maybe being among those top five Pacers. He didn't make my top 30 as we right, revealed right. those in the last three weeks, and that might have been a mistake. His his path into broadcasting was kind of interesting, where as he segged from basketball to broadcasting, he started doing sports on WKLR in the mornings. Uh, Steve Simpson was the morning guy. And he really wasn't very good, but he was a terrific learner and worked really, really hard and became every bit the broadcaster that he was a player. Yeah, and that's interesting because I don't even really think about Clark Kellogg's basketball career as much as you think about his announcing career. And it's one of those things where you know he's a pacer, but you don't really know how significant of a player that he was because I really don't remember watching him play because I wasn't alive yet. So uh, I don't really remember seeing a lot of tapes either, but I've heard great things about him, so... Uh, I'm right there with you, underappreciated. Now, for me, I told you off air that I did 
uh, I did have a little bit of a struggle with coming up with my top five just because, you know, it's so subjective, right? But um, for my number five, I got confirmation from my father when I when I told him this was on my uh, – this was my number five was. He said, well, I agree with that. I went with Byron Scott. Nice. And, you know, he only played two seasons with the Pacers, only started three games, came off the bench, played 147 games in those two years, and I believe in those two years – with Indiana, we made the Eastern Conference Finals back-to-back years that year in Game 7. So, you know, my dad, when I told him I had Byron Scott on my list, he goes, I feel like he was kind of that veteran they needed to get them over the hump. Yep. And, yeah, there's no doubt about that. And, and so that's why I was like, you know what, people think of Byron Scott with the Lakers and, you know, his great time there with L.A. retiring a Laker as well. And it was just one of those things where I felt like his importance to Indiana – is a little bit overlooked because, of course, Reggie was a shooting guard. Mark was the point guard. But when he was called uh, to play, I mean, he put up good numbers, and he was a really staple of that team, in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree that culturally he was really important, and that's kind of the piece of the puzzle that teams usually add last when mm-hmm. they are when they feel like, from a talent perspective, they're at a potential championship level where you need that guy who's going to come into the locker room and say, this is how it's done. This is how Magic did it. This is how Kareem did it. This is how James Worthy did it. This is how you get from here to there. And I thought that Byron Scott was absolutely that guy. And Larry Brown, Donnie Walsh, they were very, very smart in bringing him in. From a cultural perspective, I thought he was the guy who got us over the hump. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to see that we're in alliance here on that with my with my dad's thoughts as well because he was 32, 33 when he came over, and you don't see a lot of guys come from the Lakers that were you know a very pivotal part of that team and a starter for those teams coming to Indiana to come off the bench. You just don't usually see that, so that meant a lot to me. But um, anyway, let's move forward to your number four. Who do you got? My number four is Danny. Like Danny I, I, I think that yeah, Danny gets lost kind of in the in the that sort of that period between Reggie and Paul George. Mm-hmm. You, you wind up talking a lot about uh, Reggie and Paul George and not giving maybe the respect that Danny Granger is due. Danny Granger went from a, uh, a rookie who really didn't contribute too much to a second-year guy who did, and then he just got better and better and better. And in his best five years, which all came in a row, the dude, uh, you know, and he scored 21.6 a game and, and was really, really good, went to an all-star game, and again, a guy, if he doesn't have the knee problems that he had, we're probably talking about that guy maybe scoring, you know, 15, 17,000 points as an Indiana Pacer as it was. He had those five really, really good years and uh, justified easily that number 17 overall pick that Larry Bird spent on him. Yeah, you know how I feel about Granger. He's one of my favorite Pacers. And maybe it's because I don't underappreciate him that I didn't put him on my list. But I, I definitely thought about him as a player that does go down as an underappreciated player because of the the coach that he had to deal with, the system that he was playing in, the teammates that he had. I mean, they were nice guys, but nobody was elite. And, you know, when he finally gets on a team that's got, you know, good talent, he gets hurt. So it was just kind of like kind of similar to Clark Kellogg, like you mentioned. Just you wish he would have been healthy for those years when the success started to come from it. But I love me some Danny Granger. I'm always uh, going to be a fan of him for the rest of my life. And if you put him on an underappreciated list, I totally agree with that. Now, 
I am concerned with my number four. I think you're going to hate this one, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you, it's <laughs> yeah. it's Travis Best. Oh, and uh, yeah. Here's here's why. And so this is funny because I go back to my dad when I told him my first when I asked him for my for uh, his top five. The one of the first two guys that came out of his mouth was Travis Best, and I was like, okay, so maybe I'm not the only one thinking this, but I remember that game winning three that he had against the Bucks. Right. The year we got to the finals in Game Five. I was just recently watching the 1998 YouTube videos of Game 4 and Game 6, and it was really interesting to me to see Larry Bird keep him out there in the clutch, you know, with not putting Mark Jackson back in, but riding it out with Travis Best. Best, you know, constantly over-dribbled the ball. Fans would get mad about that. But he had an amazing layup where he tied the game so Reggie could hit that game-winning three. And he also got past Michael, where Michael fouled him. He went down and knocked two big free throws in. I just feel like Best was kind of a gamer. And while there was some obvious, you know, concerns with him as a, you know, a starter, that's why they had to end up bringing Jackson back to the team. I think he was a little bit underappreciated as far as, you know, when I think of Travis Best, I hear a lot of people talk about, oh, dribble the ball for 23 seconds and then throw a bad pass to somebody or whatever. That's what you hear with him. But when you watch him play, I felt like he was a much better player than I remember a lot of people describing him as. So feel free to fire away at this one, but I put him at number four on my list for that reason. Well, I'd love to disagree with you, but I can't. Because what this is, this is about being underappreciated, right? Right. And, And Travis Best played seven seasons here, and nobody appreciated him at all. When he was here, That's so like. you know, despite the right, he he averaged eight point one points per game and three point eight assists. So he was never going to be an all star, but you know, proportionate to the level that he was not appreciated here, he was a pretty damn good basketball player. Mm-hmm. And and you're right, you know, the pounding it and pounding it and pounding it drove people crazy because that's not basketball in Indiana. That might work other places, but it doesn't work here. But I do believe that he was absolutely underappreciated, commensurate to his contributions, just because stylistically nobody appreciated him at all. Well, I have to ask you this because Larry Bird, you know, a lot of people give him a lot of praise for how he coached those, you know, 97 through 2000s Pacers. Why did he put so much trust in uh, in, uh, Travis Best at the end of games? You know, seeing that he was a former player and one of, you know, people call one of the best coaches in Pacers history. um, Why do you think he had so much faith in him? That's a great question. I don't know. You know, he he was a guy, he didn't turn it over a gob. And and he played reasonably uh, on on the defensive end. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure what Larry was thinking, but he was an okay player. Mm -hmm. He he was never a starting level player. You know, he was never, other than like for Miami in 0203, he never started, uh, well, he did, I guess, his second year, 96-97. He started 46 games for the Pacers. Mm -hmm. But other than that, in that season in Miami, he was never a full-time starter, started half the games that he played. Um, You know, it's it's one of those, he's one of those guys. You know, the ball just kind of stopped when it got to him. He, to me, like Indiana basketball, you, you had a guy over the last four years in Devontae Green. Devontae Green knew how to play with the basketball in his hands and really didn't know how to play without it. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's a guy who is comfortable creating for himself. I think Travis was kind of that guy. Okay. That, you know, he, he I don't think he did a lot wrong, but 
the way he did what he did when he did it right was almost as bothersome to fans <laughs> as as when he did things wrong. You know what I mean? He right. could win for losing. He, he bangs it for 23 seconds and makes a layup. Nobody thought about the layup. Nobody said, well, that was pretty good. They just said, damn, I can't stand to watch him bang it for 23 seconds before he does something. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with that completely. That's a great, great comparison there. And, you know, a lot of times I don't put my college brain with my NBA brain together, but that's a great comparison. So, all right, Travis Best, you don't hate it that much, so I don't feel as bad. Let's move on <laughs> to number three. Who you got? Well, this, I mean, this is a, a guy who's been a one-time All-Star, a current member of the team, and that's Domas Sabonis. Okay. And the only reason I've got him there is this is first year as a starter, and so maybe, you know, fans haven't kind of adopted him as one of their favorite players. But I think if you asked a, a random selection of maybe 100 uh, Pacers fans, if you could have any autographed jersey of a current Pacer, who would you take? I'd, I'll bet you less than 10 would say Sabonis. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, you know, I think they'd say Vic. I think they'd say Brogdon. I think Miles Turner, because of his longevity, has has a lot of fans here. But Domas Sabonis averaging this year 18.5 and, and 12-4 and four, going to the All-Star game, I, I just think he's that guy. And that the Pacers came really close to not signing him to that extension and, and almost – you know, putting themselves in a position where they might have lost him via free agency. I, I think that this guy is the type of player you can win a championship with. You know, if Domas mm-hmm. Sabonis is your second best player, your third best player, you got a chance to win a championship in the NBA. I, I think he's that guy. When we look back at the Paul George trade, you know what, Vic, important, but I think that really the most important piece of that trade is going to wind up being Domas Sabonis in the end. Yeah, I love me some Domas, you know, and uh, I didn't put him on here either because I feel like he's still so young in his Pacer career. I didn't even yeah. put, like, new current guys on here because I don't think it's fair to look at their career yet and say they're underappreciated. But for now, I mean, it's very possible. Actually, when I put this tweet out, I was expecting to get a lot of Miles Turner uh, replies as underappreciated because I feel like a lot of people that I see on Twitter always talk about how underappreciated Miles is and how Sabonis always gets the love. But uh, I'm with you. I, I think Sabonis is very underappreciated, and he's you know everybody everybody thought he was a throw-in with the Oladipo trade. It was right. kind of like, oh, here's a young guy that was playing out of position at the four. You put him in the backup center position, works his way into the starting role. You know, to me, it was like. This guy is so good. I see so much talent in him, and I'm with you. I think that you need players that have that high of a basketball IQ on your team, and I'm with you on he can be a second or third best player to go to a, to lead a team to a championship. He just has to have the right pieces around him. I'm not sure if the Pacers right now have the right pieces around him, but I think if they there are a couple moves away, uh, trades away to me from getting there, but. I love Sabonis on this. Is there anything else you want to throw in there on Domas? Well, I'll tell you one guy in the Pacers' front office who appreciates Sabonis, wanted to draft Sabonis, wanted to figure out a way that the Pacers could get him on draft night is Ryan Carr. Okay. Why Ryan Carr loved Sabonis coming out of Gonzaga, and uh, when they had the opportunity to get him as part of that trade, there was nobody in that front office happier than Ryan Carr. Ryan Carr absolutely got that one 100% right. 
that that he did. I mean, look at look at where Sabonis is at now. All star starter. Yeah. And a huge part of this Pacers team and arguably the best Pacer right now. So uh, let's move forward to my number three, Kent. And this is the one and only the feisty one, Jeff Foster. So, <laughs> I love Jeff Foster. And uh, maybe it's a little too high. Maybe I should have had him at five. I was debating where to put him on my top five. But screw it. Number three is good for me. And you look at the numbers. They're not screaming off the board, but speaking of boards, this dude rebounded. He was a pretty solid defensive guy. One thing I loved about him was he was old school. When Derrick Rose and the Pacers uh, were playing the Bulls in the playoffs, I mean, he got flagrant fouls almost every game because he wasn't going to let Derrick Rose get to the basket at ease. And he came off the bench the last, you know, three years of his career. He started, you know, for about five or six years in a row there during the Pacers kind of rebuilding uh, era, but he was still a starter when they were, you know, having their best record in the NBA. So it was one of those things where I love Jeff Foster. I think that he was a fantastic fit next to Jermaine O'Neal because Jermaine didn't want to be physical, didn't want to bang. And so Jeff was like, hey, I'll do whatever you guys need me to do. And, you know, a lot of times we just kind of overlook him, but played with the Pacers for his entire year, 1999, 2000, all the way to 2012. And I, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, not great numbers, but just a great pacer that I feel gets a little bit overlooked and is a little bit underappreciated. Now, I will. I'm going to disagree with you on this one. I, I think that he was he was appreciated at a level greater than maybe his contributions. He, he never averaged better than seven points a game. He did average nine rebounds a game a couple of times, mm-hmm. but he made $50 million dollars in his career, just over $50 million. If you're Jeff Foster and you cannot shoot the basketball and you make $50 million, I cannot assign, I, I cannot have the adjective underappreciated associated with your name <laughs> in any way. You, you are appreciated at a level that like I can't even contemplate, at least financially. He right. didn't play his entire career for the Pacers, and I think that's really cool. And, and there were people who absolutely loved the guy because of his tenacity and, and his work ethic. It, never terribly productive, but always a grinder. Made a lot of money. Good for him. I love him as a guy. I love him as a player. But as a, uh, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. Given his popularity with fans and, and the longevity of his career here, he has never, like, dipped his toe into the broadcasting pool to, to make a little bit of extra money that I can recall not once. I mean, he's mm-hmm. a good guy, and he, he does things for charitable causes and whatnot, but he's never, like, been sort of that that Scott Pollard-type guy or that Eddie Gill-type guy who, uh, you know, thought, hey, maybe broadcasting would be something I'd like to do, and I can parlay my popularity into a little bit of cash and, and kind of a, a hobby of sorts. I'm not sure that I've ever even heard Jeff Foster talk, which is interesting to me. I've never given given any thought before, but given the level at which former Pacers kind of migrate into broadcasting, uh, that Jeff Foster hasn't done it is just kind of weird to me. Yeah, that's a good point because he really doesn't come around anymore either. Like You'll see him every great once in a while at a game, but it's like once every three years, and He's right. a quiet guy. He just seems like very content with his life and doesn't really like to be bothered about basketball. I mean, who even knows if he really loves basketball? That could be part of it, too. It could have been just something he was good at. <laughs> That's true. Because he was tall. I mean, 
I mean, we always talk about Carl Malone saying that he didn't really love basketball that much, which is crazy because he was so good. But, um, you know, he liked farming better and that kind of thing. So maybe Jeff's just kind of backwards in that way where basketball wasn't his first love. It was just something that he did because he was big and tall and, you know, he did what he was required to do. I don't know. I'm just speculating here, Kit. Yeah. I love me some Jeff Foster, and I kind of miss seeing guys like that, even coming off the bench. You know what I mean? Just a guy that scrapper, physical. You know, I like the hard fouls. I, I mean, I know some of them were probably a little over the top, but he was no, a tough no, no, guy. No, no, no. And, uh, I, you know, I, one thing that annoys me about Jermaine O'Neal, I'm just going to say it right now, is I couldn't stand that Jermaine hated to play the center because he didn't want to bang. It's like, you're almost seven foot tall, dude, and you're like 250 pounds. Like, get down there and bang. What's it going to hurt? I mean, it would help the team if you'd play center some. But instead, he wouldn't do it. So to appease Jermaine, we had to start Jeff Foster for all those years because Jermaine wanted to be a power forward. And Jeff was like, whatever, I'll do what I'm asked to do. Didn't play a ton of minutes. I mean, 26 was the most he ever had per season, per game. So, you know limited minutes but when he was out there i felt like he was effective yeah and the only thing i disagree with there is that i don't think you can harm or you can foul hard enough (laughs) like go get guys go put guys on their ass be that hard ass that a team needs to kind of establish a physical tone i thought jeff did that really well i i think that that's maybe the one area of the game where he was really really good Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree. I, I miss that style of basketball watching the 90s. Yeah, I mean, people would be cringing right now in today's era of basketball watching them play, but I, I love it. I love seeing guys take mid-range shots and, you know, stepping in one foot and from the three-point line to hit a two. It just makes me laugh seeing, uh, thinking about how people would react to it now. But anyway, Kit, let's move on. we got two left. Who is your number two? I went with Freddie Lewis. Because when you talk about the championship ABA teams of the Pacers, and we talked about this the last couple of weeks as we talked about the ABA era, you know, you you talk about Roger Brown, you talk about McGinnis, you talk about Mel Daniels, you talk about Neto. But only the, the old guys who watched say Freddie Lewis was the man on those teams. Freddie Lewis was every bit the basketball player on both ends that uh that these other guys were and and to you know we we always kind of gloss over freddie lewis's contributions to those championship teams and and so i put him at at number two despite the fact that i never saw him play and i have no idea yeah like what it was like to watch him play um it seems like the old timers are are very into freddie lewis and what his contributions were as an equivalent guy to Roger and Mel and George and Neto and those other guys that were a big part of those teams. Yeah, and, you know, I thought about putting Freddie Lewis on my list, I'm not going to lie, but I I don't like talking about guys that I don't really know. And I I talked about him last week when we did our top ten, so I'm like, you know, I already kind of mentioned that he's the underappreciated guy with the ABA days, so I kind of stuck with just NBA. But I I agree. I mean, you, you said it right there perfectly. Most people, when you talk to them that watch the ABA team, always talk about Freddie Lewis. I mean, yeah. I feel like he gets more credit sometimes than McGinnis and Roger Brown. I mean, that's how much people talk about how pivotal he was to those teams' success. So, you know, I I love Freddie Lewis and what he did for those ABA teams, but I didn't really get a chance to watch him play, so it's kind of unfair for me to say too much about him. And I know people are probably tired of hearing me say that, so I'll move on. But um, <laughs> <laughs> for me, number two, I think you'll appreciate this one. 
And this was who my dad said first. So I was glad that we were in agreement on this one. And he and me, me and my dad both agreed on Vern Fleming as number two. Yeah. And my dad was like, I just feel like, you know, Vern was just a loyal guy to the, to the franchise was really good when he played and really underrated. Didn't put up great, great numbers, but was just a solid piece for that Pacers team, you know, from the eighties going into the nineties. And, we see, you know, after the 94-95 a year when we lost to the Magic, he ended up going to the Nets for one season before retiring. So, and he played 77 games there. So, I mean, wasn't really hurt a lot. I mean, there were some times where he didn't play a ton of games, but still would put up a lot of put up a lot of minutes uh, for the Pacers when he was playing and was just that solid, consistent point guard they needed to kind of get them over the hump in the 80s and the early 90s. So, I like Vern Fleming. I went in with him at number two, and I know you're a big Vern uh, fan as well. I love Vern. And and Vern, you know, you look at those Pacers teams from like the mid-80s through the uh, the mid-90s. I think he was here till like 93, 94. You know, a lot of people still love Vern Fleming. And, and I think that especially this era of fan looks back and, and they don't see a lot of Vern. You know what I mean? And, right. and so, yeah, I, I would totally agree that he's kind of an unheralded guy and, and somebody that's underappreciated. Not on my list, but I absolutely agree. Awesome. Well, I have a feeling that we might have the same number one here, Kent. Yeah. So uh, I, I'll let you go ahead and unveil yours, and then we can discuss. But uh, go ahead. Give me your number one. You know, it's Jermaine O'Neal. and. Yeah, six-time All-Star, 18.6 and 9.6 as an Indiana Pacer. He went to more All-Star games, NBA All-Star games, than anybody else in Pacers uniform. And and so by some measure, you know, you could look at Jermaine and say, you know what, maybe he's, maybe he's a top three guy, maybe a top two guy in the history of the franchise. He's nowhere near as important as Reggie Miller, but for a swath of time, he was really important to a team that won a whole bunch of games. And if not for the brawl, maybe they win championships. Mm-hmm. He had no charisma on the court or off the court. And so I think that we grade him down because of his personality instead of just looking at the basketball. And he, you know what? Who's been more productive over a longer period of time than Jermaine O'Neal? Uh, six-time All-Star, I think that speaks for itself. You talk about... If we and, and we've done this, but if you didn't like dig a little bit, if you just said name five Pacers, I'm not sure Jermaine O'Neal would be one of the five that you'd name. Not best, but the guys who immediately come to mind as members of that team and a part of that franchise. I'm not sure Jermaine O'Neal is one of those guys. And I, I've told this story before, but I remember the day he was traded, we had him on with Kravitz and Eddie on 1070 The Fan. And he was talking about coming back and looking forward to the return where his number was going to be hoisted to the rafters. And and I thought, you know, this this guy just doesn't understand who he is in terms of this franchise. He's not that kind of guy. But if you look at what he did for that team for a significant period of time back in the knots, you know, that 2000 to 2010 decade, man, he was really damn good. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was way off in thinking that we were heading in the same direction, which is hilarious, uh, because I really didn't do any like key starters. That's what was funny to me, because I feel like 
I grew up watching Jermaine. He was probably the person that I watched most of my young age, uh, you know, with him in his prime. So I think of Jermaine O'Neal when I think of the Pacers. You know, I think of Reggie, obviously, as well. But I think of Jermaine as him passing the mantle to Danny, from Danny passing it to, you know, Paul, and then Paul trading it to uh, Victor Oladipo. That's kind of how I have seen it yeah. over and over and over. So I've always thought of Jermaine as a guy that was a – the face of the franchise for a few years. I mean, he had an MVP season at one point, so I didn't really think of him as underappreciated. So I'll go ahead and veil my number one then because it's completely different than yours. I went with a guy that the Pacers <laughs> traded Detlef Shrimp for. I went with Derek McKee. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. Yeah, and I know that you love Derek McKee, and I'm pretty sure that it was Mark Boyle who put it out on Twitter saying that people really don't give him the respect that he deserves, but Derek McKee was – one of the main reasons why the Pacers had so much success in the 90s. And, I mean, even when he was getting older in the 2000-2001 seasons, he was still, you know, a guy that Larry Bird leaned upon in that NBA Finals run in the 98 run and was playing pretty solid defense. I mean, you're not going to be able to stop Michael Jordan, but, you know, he did a pretty good job on him coming off the bench. You know, Jalen Rose was there, and so was Chris Mullen, so his minutes were definitely uh, reduced in those later years for him, but I still thought he was just a great player. And the reason the Pacers started getting better was because Larry Brown came in and changed up the scheme a little bit from offense to defense, like we've talked about. And I think getting McKee was a very important piece because that team had scores and had offensive players, but it needed more defense. And I felt like McKee was the perfect fit for that team. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of fans just kind of overlook him because you think about Jalen, you think about Mark, the Davis brothers, Rick Smith, Reggie. You just kind of you just kind of overlooked Derek, and I feel like Derek was very very pivotal, and he was very underappreciated. Yeah, he would have probably been my sixth guy. Okay, like I, I've got a list. I've got like Derek, and I've got Stephen Jackson. I've got Jalen, even T.J. Warren. Way too early to have him part of a, a list like this, but I wrote down his name. I had Brad Miller as mm-hmm. a, as a kind of unheralded guy. And, and I think that that was more internally than externally. I, I don't think he should have been traded. I think he's a guy who could have played a significant role on this team. He was like Jeff Foster, but with offensive firepower behind oh, him. Oh, yeah. You know, so if, if you had retained him, uh, I think that that would have put that franchise on a different truck throughout the uh, 2000s. But, yeah, Derek McKee, terrific defensive player, a guy who was really, really smart, a guy who didn't need the basketball, didn't need to score it. He was, I'm not going to say a reluctant scorer, but compared to other guys who felt like, you know, if they put the ball in the bucket, it was worth a certain amount of cash in their pocket. Derek's not one of those. He still lives in the area. He's got a twin brother. So does Vern Fleming, by the way. And so it's really hard. I think they're twins. Vern and his brother are definitely twins. McKee and his brother, either they're twins or they look exactly alike. (laughs) They're really impossible to differentiate. Um, But you always see Derek, at at least the last few years, at the LPGA event out at Brickyard at the Crossing. He's a a big LPGA fan for, for some reason. And not that anybody shouldn't be. They're they're wonderful people, and they're always fun to watch. I love going out there and watching that tournament. Uh, but he's always there. Like I was doing doing uh, I, I was calling names at the tee, doing the announcing. So you know, now on the tee from Opelika, Florida, whatever her name is. <laughs> and uh, there, there are like four people at the tee watching. And I was like, Hey, are you? Because he had a an Alabama cap on. 
I said, are you Derek McKee? Derek, what are you doing here? Oh, I just loved the LPGA. Wow. I'm always out That's here. I'll be out story. here all weekend. Yeah, I, I was like, hey, good, good to see you. And uh, so, you know, but that's Derek McKee, always understated, doesn't draw a crowd at all. But, you know, was certainly for a long time here, six, seven, eight years, a really important part of a winning franchise for sure. Well, I think it's funny, Kent, because we just did our top five most underappreciated and we didn't have one match. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, there's yeah. a lot of underappreciated Pacers, in my opinion. And you mentioned some honorable mentions that you had on your list. Uh, a couple that I was uh, debating. I had Darren Collison. I feel yeah. like he's kind of underrated because I remember when he came back, people were like, "What are we doing?" You know what I mean? Like, right? I was like, "Why are we bringing him back?" Like, we didn't like him the first time he was here that much. Uh, <laughs> no offense, but I mean, everybody was just like. You got George Hill. Why are you starting Collison still? But uh, then I think about Chris Mullen. I think he was a little bit underappreciated. I mean, he had lost quite a bit by the time he got here. But yeah. I've always been a huge fan, and I've said this the last couple episodes, so I don't want to keep you know, beating the dead horse, but I kept saying his importance as being a veteran was huge, and having that experience really helped the Pacers. And then another guy I mentioned was, uh, was Herb Williams. And, oh, yeah, for and, sure. And we've talked about Herb before. We talked about him in the first episode, I believe, of our top 30. And he's just a guy that kind of gets lost in the shuffle. But he was there with the Pacers for a long time in the 80s into the early 90s. And he was a big part of the Pacers' success. And I feel like fans, especially today's generation, doesn't really know much about him. So I think that he's underappreciated as well. But, you know, Kent, this was fun. I mean, uh, I wasn't expecting to have this much fun doing this, but I did. I'm just a little disappointed you hated my Jeff Foster take. But... Um, between my Jeff Foster and your Goga love, I mean, well, <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, Goga is uh, my how I feel about Jeff Foster for you. You know, uh, you're going to see. I'm telling you, in about five, I never miss on these things. In four years, he's going to be an NBA All Star. Assuming all this gets you know put back together as we expect that it will after all this, you know, the coronavirus stuff. I think that Goga Batadza has a chance to be a really, really good basketball player. He's got a beautiful shot. He runs the floor exceptionally well. He sees the floor really, really well. Once he learns how to defend and how to, and he builds that body into one that is, he's going to be able to block out effectively. Goga Batadza has a knack for basketball that I think is really, really rare. And, and I think as we look back, where'd they take him? What was that like 18? I think Something it was, like that. I think it was 18, yeah. You know, it, it, the Pacers have done really, really well with guys drafted 17th, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it was Hibbert or Granger, I think that Goga has a pretty good chance to be the uh, the next of those guys taken at that level of the first round who really figures out how to play at a high level in the NBA. He, there's a level of want-to with him. There, they, The thing that I'm always wary of, are the guys who think that because they got drafted in the first round, they got it made. Yeah. You know what I mean? And Goga Batanza has none of that. He was homeless for more than a year in his native Georgia. He, he talks. It's really an interesting story. But this is a guy who six, seven years ago was homeless and, and kind of figured it out and, and grew to be tall, learned basketball, played it at a high level for a brief period of time in the Euro League. And I think by the time it's all said and done, that dude is going to be a really, 
really good four in the NBA or or a terrific spread five. I, I like Gogo a lot, as, as, as you well know. Well, i got to be honest, Kent, because I like giving you a hard time about Gogo, but I'm going to tell you a few things about how I felt about that draft pick. And a lot of people were like, oh, what are we doing drafting another center? What a stupid pick. But when the pick was announced, my thought was, okay. Like, it was kind of like, uh, I'm not mad at that. And that's kind of how I felt when we drafted Paul George back in 2010. I was like, who is this guy? You know what I mean? It wasn't like I hated the pick. I was just like, I don't know much about this guy. Right. And that's kind of how I felt about Goga. I was like, okay. So you start hearing people talk about how great of a talent he is. I mean, a lot of experts were saying that he was going to be, you know, the sleeper of the draft. So I go start watching YouTube videos like everybody does to see what they think of Goga and think what he could be. And I'm not going to lie. I messaged somebody on Twitter when we were talking about the pick, and I said, I hate to say it, but give it 10 years, I think he could be better than both Miles and Domas. And I said that, now. after watching Domas explode this year, I think I might be a little off. But that was my initial reaction after watching him play, just because I felt like he is kind of a combination of both of their skill sets. And if he can get to where he's an NBA-level player and a regular starter, I think that he could surpass them both just because he can post up, he can shoot the three, he can play defense, he's a good passer. Right now, he just looks like he's scared out there when he's on the court, like he doesn't know what he's supposed to do. It's almost like he's just excited to be out there on the court than he is ready to make a difference and be a banger. And I like what they said is he would kind of get mad during uh, the summer workouts and stuff because he wanted to – you know, he wants to win. He's a little nasty on the court. They like that yep. about him. I was like, man, these are these all these things are pointing up to him being a great player. So I did say that, Kent. So you're not by yourself in the love for Goga, but I have definitely not been as vocal about it because I I, I love me some Domas as well. <laughs> you know, it's it, it was interesting on draft night to be up there at the St. Vincent Center and talking to Nate and talking to Kevin, and then the international scouts who like stumped for him. Nate came out, had no idea who Coca Batadza was. And, and so, you know, he's like, Hey, I, I've seen what you guys saw. We drafted him. I watched a little bit of tape on him. And, and then Kevin said that he was shocked that Goga was, was still on the board at 18. And then they had the international guys came out, come out and said, Okay, you know, Kevin said that, uh, maybe, you know, you guys thought that he was going to go much earlier in the draft. And the two uh, international guys said, no, no, he, he went right where we figured he would go. <laughs> and so, like, there was, there was clear uh, disconnect from person to person in the front office as to kind of who this was and how good he could be and how he projected. They were not on the same page at all. But once you met the kid, you, you kind of figured, all right, you know what? There, there's something about him and his attitude toward the game that is going to lend itself to him developing as a player. Mm-hmm. And and I think that we're going to see that. And, and we're going to see that sooner rather than later. And it's going to make somebody expendable. Yeah. And, and you talked about being two trades away. One of those trades is going to be because of Goga Batadze getting much better at the game of basketball. That's that's what I've kind of been feeling too, Kent. And a lot of people that have said, why did the Pacers draft another center? Well, that's because they were going to get rid of one of them. That's what a lot of right. you know franchises felt like. Hey, the Pacers are going to be moving off of one of these centers. You saw how aggressively people were trying to go after Miles Turner last year at the draft. 
And then there was speculation before they got the extension done with Sabonis that Sabonis might be the one on the out. So right now, I'm not really sure what the Pacers are thinking because I'm sure Goga is probably a little bit further behind than they were hoping he would be because I remember Kevin saying, oh, he's going to be ready to play. (laughs) You know, there's no doubt about it. And I think all the setbacks with the Summer League really, you know, not really diminished, but it did hurt his on-court experience with different guys for us to get a feel for him as a player. So I think Goga, though, this is one thing that fans will love to hear because we know that free agents don't come to Indiana. But I think that Goga is a guy that loves this team and this state so much. The fans love him already. I mean, he is a, yeah. a fan favorite. Once, If he can establish himself as a rotational player, you know, as a consistent you know, backup center or a starter, I truly believe that he could be a pacer for life. I, I sure hope so because yeah. he's a great dude. And and so, you know, there's some people you root for and some people really you maybe you don't root for nearly as hard. Like, you know, we, we always kind of pick on Monte Ellis, but I, I met him and saw him in the locker room. I stopped going into the locker room after games because of Monte Ellis. I just didn't want to be around the guy at all. Mm-hmm. Like even talking to somebody else, I didn't want to be around because it was impossible to avoid Monte Ellis. He was so loud and kind of boorish. That I, I was like, okay, I, I just don't want to be around this energy anymore. Goga's exactly the opposite of that. You know, Goga Goga's just a, a good dude who wants to get as good as he can at the game, and he's not going to complicate it. He's just going to work his ass off and and try to be the best that he can be. And I think that in the end, it's guys like that who have his set of physical characteristics as well that you can kind of project three or four years down the road to being a very, very good starting basketball player. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because we had Thaddeus Young on Thursday or Wednesday night last uh, last week and got to talk with Thad for about 35 minutes. And I tell you what, now I know why fans or why media members said that Thad oh, was yeah. one of their favorite players. I mean, yeah. that dude will talk. He's honest. He's candid. And I asked him, I said, what was the difference between the Paul George era and the Victor Lodipo era, uh, you know, you being right there in the middle of it. And he said, with that Paul George era, there were way too many alpha dogs. He said, Monte, Jeff, and Paul, he said, everybody thought, you know, they had to have their say in everything, and nobody could get along. Nobody knew who to look to for to be the leader. And to me, that's pretty funny that he even mentioned Rodney Stuckey in that group too, which kind of threw me by surprise because I don't think of Rodney as an alpha dog. But, hey, you never know. And you're not in the locker room, so you don't know that. But he was, I mean, can you imagine uh, (laughs) Paul George, the face of the franchise, having to compete with Monte Ellis pretty much trying to say what they should and shouldn't do? So, you know, that's kind of why I think that Monte was more of a cancer than, so to say, Tyreek Evans, you know. Tyreek just couldn't stay off the weed. That's pretty much what we know by now. And other stuff. And he stayed to himself. And that was true with Rodney, too. I I never saw... Rodney kind of is a wannabe alpha dog, but he was never going to be the beta dog. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. He, he right. was he was not a fabric or a part of the fabric of what was going on. And and Monte, I think, tried to be, but he that's just not kind of who he is. Yeah. And it, it's it, it was just a strange locker room that I, I didn't want to be in. And what were you going to get out of there anyway? But you're, you're exactly right about that. Thad was a wonderful guy after practice to talk to. You could sit down next to Thad and have a conversation. 
Yeah. And that's what's that's when it's most fun. And and a guy in the team now who's similar to that is Justin Holiday. Justin Holiday is smarter than hell. He's verbal as hell. He's really fun to talk to. He's got a great sense of humor. You can just sit down and kind of shoot the shoot the crap with uh, with Justin and get great answers that are insightful and and kind of lead you to believe something about that team and that group. And mm-hmm. so I, I'm I'm really glad they signed Justin as as sort of at least a media darling replacement for Thad. Because you know, Malcolm is not going to give you anything. You know, Miles isn't going to give you anything. Domas isn't going to give you anything. anything. TJ, a little bit. You know, and, and Jeremy Lamb. If you ask him a good question, you get a good answer. Don't ask but, him uh, a bad one, though. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, Justin's fantastic. You know, he's very insightful. So great guy to have around. But we miss Thad a lot. Thad was terrific. Well, I'll tell you this, because we asked that. We were on a video chat with him, which was great. Got to see him face-to-face for 35 minutes, talk to him, which was he was so yeah. kind. And I said, well, what do you think about this year's Pacers team? And he basically said, well, they've improved a lot on offense. They went out and got scores, and that's really helped them, he said. But they still miss that defensive presence, because when I was there, we were a top-five defense, and they're not in the top-five anymore as far as defense goes. And so then I kind of hinted and said, well, uh, you know, Thad, would you be open to coming back? <laughs> and he said, Kevin and Chad have my agent's number. They know who to get a hold of. <laughs> <laughs> so, he, I was... he, you know, he and his family really liked it here. His kids loved it here. And I, I know that that was, you know, uh, that move to Chicago was at least unpleasant from that perspective because the kids really dug it here. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, I asked him, I said, would you have accepted a bench roll, you know, because I'm just curious, like, would you have accepted it? And he was like, you know, he said, I'm accepting one now, aren't I? He said, but it would have been a lot different to go from being a starter to going to playing off the bench, especially because he was the team captain. And he said that pretty much he talked to Nate about everything. And he said that's one thing he loved about Coach Nate was that they had a relationship where he trusted Thad and Thad could tell him different things that the locker room was feeling. So that way they could have a better, you know, relationship and figure out things to do on the court. Because I I definitely like to hear players' uh, thoughts on coaches because we hear a lot of fans' thoughts on coaches, but I want to hear what players think. And he said that he thought Nate was a great coach. So, yeah, it's a hell of a lot different now with Jim Boylan. I, I bet so. It, you could just tell that he never. We didn't even talk about the Bulls. I didn't even bring it up, to be honest with you. So that's uh, probably I, wise. Yeah, I just probably asked why him, you had him for thirty-five minutes. <laughs> I know. I just I just asked about the Pacers and his time and uh, Fachi as well. I mean, we had a, we had a great thing. So if you guys haven't checked that out, I encourage you to go listen to that. And he uh, he loves Lance though. That's the only thing where he's different from you, Kent. Really? He said that. Uh, he said Lance changed the energy for them and that make them dance Lance was uh, he brought a different edge to the Pacers and they were better with Lance is what he told us. He said they were a better team when he was on the court because of the energy that he brought. So, well, there's no arguing with energy. Right. You know, and maybe we, not we, but people who are maybe Lance detractors. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to rope you into my little my little club. Um, you can't. You know, maybe we just see Lance through a prism that is maybe it's inaccurate. You know, but here here's the one thing about Lance is he's played for everybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Like the Lakers, they want to win basketball games. Lance hitting back. 
you know, he was in Charlotte for a time. He's bounced around quite a bit. And this is really the only place where he's ever sort of found a home, but he wasn't smart enough to respect it and and take the you know the five year forty four million dollar deal, and and so you know he's kind of been hoisted by his own petard. If he wanted to be here, he could have been here, and and he chose not to be here. He took a lesser deal, and and so you know okay, how do you trust a guy who's going to do that kind of thing? You know what I mean? So anyway. Well, hey, we know what happened with the prodigal son. He left. He got in trouble. Lost all his money. He came back, and his father loved him. That's exactly what Lance is to the Pacers. Not trying to get a little Sunday sermon on you here, Kent, but right. y- you know what I mean. I mean, I think that Lance didn't want to leave once he came back. The Pacers decided to cut him, and they basically cut him so they could bring in Kyle O'Quinn, and look what that got him. I would have rather had Lance and Kyle O'Quinn last year. Kylo Quinn was a strange character. Speaking of strange guys with the media, he was really a piece of work. He, I tried to, because he, he he's got that beard and whatnot, and you know he, he looked like he he had a pretty good sense of humor. So I talked to him. I never had a good conversation with him once, and maybe that's on me. But damn, he was a really tough guy. I asked him about his beard. I said, "Man, you, you got that big burly beard. Doesn't it get hot under there?" And he looked at me like I was crazy. And then he, he had kind of these letters and these markings on, on one of his shoes. And I thought, oh, that's always interesting to talk to guys about, you know, like initials on a shoe uh, commemorating someone. I asked him about the markings on his shoes, and he got downright surly. And I was Seriously? like, all right, I, I, what the hell? If you don't <laughs> want people to see it don't and ask about it, don't put the stuff on your shoes. Like, this is an easy problem not to have. <laughs> You caused it for yourself. What do you want me to do about it? And so I just stopped talking to the guy. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, I didn't miss him at all when he left, and I'm glad that no. we got uh, McConnell from Philadelphia in that nice little yeah. uh, exchange of contracts. But, Kent, we've had a good conversation here, and next week we'll come up with another list. Uh, why not, nice. right? But, Let's uh, go. We'll, we'll, we'll be cranking out these lists while we have nothing but talking uh, basketball to do so until next time everybody follow us on setting the pace three you can follow ken at ken selling and i'm at alex golden nba and until next time peace out pacer nation sugar ray leonard roberto duran marvelous marvin Hagler, and thomas hearns legends whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history relive their decade of dominance in the new showtime sports documentary the kings a four-part series premiering sunday june 6th only on Showtime.